Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Uh, It's my privilege to reintroduce to many of you Tina Huerta who is here to uh, share the scripture with us this morning. Tina is a seminary student at Denver Seminary. And you are at Denver, right? Yep. Yeah, okay. Just making sure. Yes. I just, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tina is currently at Denver Seminary uh, and has begun uh, preaching. And that's really exciting. And so we are super excited to be able to um, give her the opportunity to grow in that, to grow in that skill. Um, you may know her as a worship leader. She's been with us a couple of times before and led for us. Uh, and so uh, that's really all there is to say. I'm super excited uh, that you're here to share the word with us today. Um, I'm going to pray over Tina and over the word, and then we're going to, uh, you can take it away. Um, Lord, thank you so much for your word. That is, God, the thing that has drawn us together here, your word which reveals who you are, which reveals who Jesus is, your word through whom the Holy Spirit, through which the Holy Spirit works in our lives to draw us closer to Jesus and empower us to live like him. And so God, we come to this moment in the service where we look into your word, we receive from you, and I pray, Father, that through the preparation that Tina has done, through the spiritual preparation of her heart, through the study that she has done, and Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak today, and that your words would sink deep in our hearts and move us to greater faithfulness, to greater love of Jesus, to greater love for our neighbors, and that through the words she shares today, our love for you would only grow. And so, Father, I pray that in all that is said, Jesus would be glorified. Not your messenger, not the building, but Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks, Brandon. And, like, if you haven't picked up my name yet, it's Tina. (laughs) I added my notes to say my name first, and I was like, it's been said three times. Um, But, so, yeah, if you recognize me, it's it's truly a joy to be with you. Uh, I have been here as a worship leader a couple of times. And, yeah, so I I wear many hats, and that's metaphorically true and also literally true, though not this morning. Um, But since becoming a Christian when I was at the ripe age of 20, Uh, So I've been a a worship drummer, a worship pastor and leader. Um, My undergrad is actually in audio engineering, so I like ran sound and stuff. And so, yeah, I've been in many different roles, as you can imagine, in the church. And now, like Brandon said, I'm in school to become a bona fide pastor. So we'll see how that goes. Um, But in case some of you are math-oriented and kind of concerned, I actually just turned 34 on Thursday. I know that I look like I'm 24. So, like, if you were doing the math and you're like, this girl is four years old in the faith, I'm actually 14. So I'm, like, past the stage of, like, pooping your pants, but now I'm, like, erratic and emotional and unreasonable teenager. So that's what you guys have this morning. 
Um, so like I said, since being in the church world, I've been in a lot of different roles and it's been really delightful. I really relish in opportunities to get to do different things as part of service. And actually, my more favorite roles are the ones that are in the back. Um, so playing drums and, and running sound. And so a year ago, I had a, a church reach out to me and say, hey, we, we have churches uh, on Saturday nights and we need someone to run sound. Would you be willing to do that? And I was like, yes, that sounds great. So for almost a year, every Saturday evening, I was going to this church in Aurora running sound. And so I came to really love these people, especially people who were in the tech booth with me. And so in December of this last year, uh, we had just finished a service and I was standing in the tech booth talking to one of the pastors and she was asking me about my seminary classes and I was telling her about this paper that I was writing. And just so you know, seminary people love to talk about what they're learning. They're really excited to show off big words that they only kind of know what they mean. So if you want to have that conversation, let's do it. Um, so anyway, you know, I'm sitting here telling her probably something profound, I'm sure. And I just remember there was this whoosh of motion behind me, so much that it like caught me off guard. And I stopped talking mid-sentence to see what had just moved. It was like someone running. And so I turn around to see what's going on. And the guy who normally sits to my left running video, uh, his name was Dave. He was actually slumped over the table. And so I immediately knew something was wrong. And so from this moment on, like, everything felt like an hour long. So the pastor who I was talking to rushed over to his side, and I'd kind of stepped back to get out of the way. And at the moment, I realized that the person who had rushed behind me was the girl to Dave's left who runs slide, and she had ran to go get his wife. So she's returning to the room with his wife in tow, and I look, and Dave is unconscious, and I said, should I call an ambulance? And she's like, yes. So I start calling an ambulance, and I step back from the immediate area as multiple people are trying to get Dave from this slumped-over position to the floor. And I remember earlier that summer, David told me that he had been having some heart issues. He'd had multiple doctor visits and then an operation. And so I see him slumped over the table, and I can only assume the worst, right? So at this point, I'm on the phone with 911. They're asking what's going on. And so I'm telling them, you know, this man who has heart issues, he's on the floor, he's unconscious. And at this point, he was actually convulsing, uh, unconscious, and he, and he had thrown up. And so she, you know, sounds kind of concerned and says she's going to transfer me to a medical operator, someone who can give me immediate medical advice. And so I'm telling this other person what's going on. And he says, hey, I need you to go over to him and tell me every time his chest raises and lowers. And so I go over to Dave as other people are still surrounding him on the floor. And I put my hand on his chest and I feel it raise and lower at a really alarmingly slow rate. So I hear the concern on the other end of the phone, though his voice is still pretty composed, actually. And he asks if we have an AED machine, which is like a defibrillator. And someone says yes, and they, they run to grab it. And the lady who actually ran slides, she was a foster mom, and so she was trained in how to run a defibrillator. So here we are, a group of people. We're standing there cutting off Dave's shirt, sticking the pads on his chest. And... I don't remember maybe the last time I had taken a full breath at this point, right? So we do one shock, and it convulses his whole body. I don't know if you've ever seen this happen. It looks like a horse kicked him. And, and we're just standing there waiting to see if there are any signs of life. 
And so it became quickly evident that he had stopped breathing. So I'm standing there on the phone with 911. They say they're on their way. And his face is turning purple. Death felt like it was in the room right next to me. And fortunately, within seconds of this happening, someone yelled from the lobby, the ambulance is here. So I go dashing out to the lobby and direct the medical personnel to where Dave is in the sanctuary. And Dave did not lose his life that day. By God's grace, literally help came just in time. But I was disturbingly close to witnessing his final breath that day. And so the the physical shock to my body from being so close to death was remarkable. I don't know if you guys have had experiences like this. I I felt a, a heightened sense of awareness, almost like more alive, which is a really odd feeling to feel after you feel like death's cloak wished by your feet. And when this all happened, I had actually been struggling intensely with this deep anxiety and fear of death for the past few years. So truthfully, somewhere along the last handful of years, this deep-seated fear began to emerge in my life, and it kind of caught me by surprise. And I just started to think, like, what the heck? Like, why don't we talk about death more often? Like, we're all going to die, but we don't talk about it. Like, why aren't we talking about how none of us are in control of our lives? Like, here today, gone tomorrow, and most of us don't have much control over uh, the outcome. And, and I don't know if your parents asked you, but my parents never came and was like, hey, are you cool with existing? Like, here's what it's going to look like. You're going to have to feed yourself an alarming amount, like three times a day. That's a lot. And then you're going to have to die. Like, are you cool with that? Like, are you cool with coming into this life? Like, no, none of us got that. We just all sort of came online. And now we're alive. And now we know we all have to pass through death. And so as I'm thinking this, and this anxiety was shaking me from within, and then I have this experience watching death come so close in front of my eyes, I began to wake up to how much we avoid death in our culture today. So most cultures throughout time have regular rituals or festivals or children's stories or sayings that regularly celebrate both birth and death. We don't really have that in the United States. I think maybe I had that most in like the Lion King growing up. But somehow in the U.S., we live under this delusion that somehow our privileges, our 401ks, and like our multivitamins are going to help us escape the inevitable, that death won't humble us all. So even in church attendance, if you think about it, everyone loves Christmas and let's invite our neighbor to that, and that's great. But the Easter numbers never compare, do they? Because to celebrate a resurrection, we actually have to let death have a seat at the table. So in his book, Slavery of Death, Richard Beck is referring to our culture's avoidance of the topic. He writes, death, like pornography, should be hidden from view. He goes on to talk about these three major shifts that we do, um, or that we have in modern life, that have greatly contributed to our death avoidance. So first of all, food is a big one. So if you think about it, like most of us eat meat products. If you're a vegan, I'm sorry. Um, But there used to be a much closer conscious relationship between food and death, right? Like sometimes there was only moments between when the animal died and it's on your plate. And so most people throughout history have this like conscious connection of something had to die to nourish me so that I can continue to live. 
And we don't get that same experience when you go through the McDonald's drive-thru and look at a chicken nugget and you're like, I'm not sure if this is ever even alive, right? So like we don't have that same idea in our head every time we sit down to eat. The second thing that Beck talks about that has changed in our culture that helps us to avoid death is the modern advent of medicine and hospitals. Beck talks about that our forebears would have had death a normal part of family life. So it was expected that you took care of your disabled, ill, and elderly within your own home. You didn't send them off to a hospital. So your home was not only a place of life, but also death. And this was a normal family rhythm. Women and children would die from childbirth in their own home. And Beck says, by the time a person met their own death, a girl child would have been a hospice nurse and a boy child would have had to dig a grave for a family member. So people did not go leave their homes to die, but it was part of loving people that meant you would be a witness to many deaths in your own home before you met your own, hopefully. Similarly, he notes the advent of the funeral industry No longer did families prepare even their loved ones in their own home, in their parlor, which is now our living rooms. Instead, now we have specialists, again, somewhere we send it off that is out of view to deal with it. And the third major thing that Beck talks about that has helped with our culture of death avoidance, he notes the locations of cemeteries. Before, these used to exist on family land, even next to schoolyards, but now we relegate them to dark corners of our city that hopefully you don't have to go to very often. And he says all this just to illustrate that death has always been the constant companion to life. And now, in our modern world, we are living under this delusion that that's not still true. So some of you might be like, wow, I should not have come to church today. This is really intense. Um, there's this like weird girl up there who's obsessed with death. But just, just hang with me. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the other part. So I know you guys have just started your Lenten series on the Psalms of Lament, um, which I think is really metal. By the way, I don't know if anybody listens to metal. Um, that's like a compliment. Uh, Psalms of Lament, most people don't hang out on those, and we'll kind of get to that. Um, but today, I want to look at Psalm 39 which is a psalm of David, of individual lament that you guessed it, it touches on death. Now, I wouldn't quite make the jump that David suffers from the same denial of death that we do in modern day, or at least to the same extent. But as a man who saw many battles and lived in a time where people regularly succumbed just to a modern cold, he would have seen death very often. So I don't think we quite have the same understanding of David as... um, concerning death. But if you guys have a Bible and you want to pull that out, we're going to turn to Psalm 39. We'll read all of it, but I just really want to focus on the first seven verses today. And I, yeah, I also have it up on the screen. So um, Psalm 39, it says this, I said, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So I remained utterly silent not even saying anything good, but my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. While I meditated, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. 
Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth, without knowing whose it will really be. But Lord, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume their wealth like a moth. Surely everyone is but a breath. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner, a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Look away from me that I may enjoy life again before I depart and am no more. So like I said, I kind of just want to focus on the first seven verses of this psalm because there's a lot that David brings up here. And as with a lot of the psalms, we don't really know the explicit events or even timing of this psalm necessarily. And a lot of commentators will relate this psalm to its predecessor, Psalm 38, which speaks of uh, an illness and also suffering. So they actually think these two are related. So what we know is that there's great physical suffering that's happening in David's life. And David corresponds that suffering to his own sin and also God's discipline of his sin. So we know, again, like that there is suffering both internal and external when he begins this psalm. So looking back to verse 1 when he says, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from my sin. I will put a muzzle on my mouth while in the presence of the wicked. So when he says, well, I will watch my ways, that kind of has connotations of the whole of his behavior. And here he is saying that he's going to refrain from speaking while he's in the presence of the wicked. So we would assume that that means his adversaries, people who were against him and also presumably against Yahweh. So this is kind of odd. He, he says he has some things to say, presumably to or about God, but he feels like he cannot say those things in the presence of his enemies. So it seems that David knew his words would maybe sound critical of God in his ways, and he didn't want those to be misunderstood. So he kept what was going on really inside. Verse 2, he says, So I remained utterly silent, not even saying anything good, but my anguish increased. So it says he kept silent and his causing his anguish to increase. So like the feelings of frustration or whatever was going on were like a volcano that was going to explode And then verse 3, my heart grew hot within me while I meditated, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. So David is suffering, and it seems pretty extensive. He feels like he cannot express himself out loud in the presence of his enemies. So yeah, maybe whatever he has to say is maybe ambiguous, or maybe it could seem like he's blaming or complaining to God, and it's not something that he wants others to hear. Whether that's because they would use it against David or maybe because David doesn't want people to get the wrong idea about Yahweh, we don't know for sure. But he can't contain himself. He's so burdened and overwhelmed that it seems his anger and his words come spilling out after he tries to restrain himself. So while we don't really know the circumstances that led to this, this is somewhat of a relatable statement, isn't it? Like for the Christian who represents Christ to others, it can feel hard to find a place to process the ugly or unwanted feelings. Things that if you express might not earn you a leadership position or accolades, but instead reveal the confusion and sometimes ugliness of the human heart, the the weakness. 
And while it seems like David might be referring namely to unbelievers in this sense, I think we can relate to having thoughts or feelings that don't feel like they might be appropriate for Bible study. And honestly, there's probably some wisdom to that, but I do want to point out that it is important to have a place where we can express these things. And whether that's in a prayer closet or coffee with a close, trusted friend, we all have those confusing, ugly, weak thoughts and feelings about this complexity of life. So here we see David can no longer contain it or hold it in, and he's meditating, but he cannot restrain any longer. So he speaks what's on his mind. He says, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. So it's kind of a sharp turn, isn't it? So David's like, I'm really suffering, and I'm going to not speak, and then he can't restrain himself. And he bursts out with, show me how short my life is, God. Like, that kind of seems like an odd thing to burst out. And so maybe he's saying, maybe my suffering will be bearable if, like, it's not for too long. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Kimmy Schmidt. She's like, you can do anything for just 10 seconds. So maybe he's just saying, like, you know, if this is short and I know that it's short, I can last. But then we see in verse 5, he says, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everything is but a breath, even those who seem secure. So handbreadth here is one of the shortest measurements we see in the ancient Jewish world. It's something like the width of four fingers. And so it's not a mile. It's four fingers long that we spend here on earth. And David acknowledges that that, that, that length is like nothing before an eternal God. So here we can hear some echoes of Ecclesiastes or even sentiments elsewhere expressed in the Psalms that life is like a breath, like a blade of grass. But David also acknowledges that the shortness of life comes even for those who seem secure in their circumstances. So verse 6, six says, Surely everyone goes around like a mere phantom. In vain they rush about, heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will finally be. So he's saying we're like phantoms, like ghosts, like not that real. We're, we're just passing through. And it says, in vain people go around gathering wealth, but having no control of where that wealth will go when they die. So even people who uh, gather great wealth and seem secure in this life, death will come for them also. The brevity of life will come for them and make small their great accomplishments in this life. So these first couple of verses, especially four through six, read more like a prayer, acknowledging God's sovereignty and the design of his life. And then we arrive at verse seven, which is a bit of a turn, where he says, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. So this is kind of the first hopeful statement we hear from David and his expression of anguish that he's experiencing. And it's also the last obviously positive or hopeful statement in this psalm. Full of suffering and anguish from his life and his own choices, David finally comes bursting out, asking God to know how brief his life is. As one commentator put it, he says, he does not ask to know all that will happen, but only what is the purpose of life. In the greater awareness of the brevity of life, he hopes that the Lord will guide him in an understanding and acceptance of this brevity. So David here is asking for help accepting the terms of this life. So David being a Jew, he would not have the same conception of death, resurrection, and eternal life that we do, though even now there is not a uniform Christian belief concerning the details of those things. 
So the prevailing Jewish thought at the time was that life did indeed continue after death, but it was in what was called Sheol. And you can see that they believe that was right below the earth's surface. And there's mixed thoughts about whether the righteous and unrighteous would be in the same location in Sheol or they would be divided. But later in Jewish thought, after the book of Daniel, there comes to be a more clear conception that there is a resurrection of the righteous and that they will be in God's presence evermore. So I say that to say this, that David isn't questioning whether there is a life after this death, but he is actually struggling to accept the terms of this life. And so I, I read this, his crying out with frustration and the circumstances of life, and I find the same cries in my own heart. That with every moment of great gladness, there is a shadow of sadness right along with it. That things will come to an end, that we will all die. And that we will never have things perfect here as our hearts deeply long for. Seneca, who was a Stoic philosopher that was writing at the same time as our Apostle Paul, he wrote this concerning the brevity of life and inevitable death. He says, To this end you were born to lose, to perish, to hope, both to fear death and to long for it, and worst of all, never know the real terms of your existence. So we know that there's a lot to lose and fear in this life. But Seneca, who we don't think was a Christ follower, has nearly similar thoughts to David here, that a great part of our suffering that we experience is actually not knowing the terms of our existence. How long do we get? Is it meaningful? Is suffering in vain? Like, does this even matter? Will I see my loved ones again? Will evil ever be gone? Will there be justice for the oppressed? So not understanding the terms of this life, not being able to accept them, is what causes a deep, unsettling fear and anxiety in the human heart, and it makes joy and peace evade us. So David here is help, asking for help to accept the terms of this existence. In Beck's book, The Slavery of Death, he looks to psychology to help us to explain the anxiety and fears we have a little deeper. So he says that there are two categories that anxiety and fear of death can fall into. There's basic anxiety and what's called neurotic anxiety. So basic anxiety is the anxiety of like biological survival. So that's our fight or flight response or like vigilantly monitoring threats in our environment. And he says that the logic of this is pretty straightforward. In the face of survival threats, our self-interest intensifies. So if the situation becomes dire, then violence breaks out. That's how it works. So the other type that he talks about is what's called neurotic anxiety. And neurotic anxiety is not concerned with monitoring our environment for threats, but it's actually characterized by worries, fears, apprehensions associated with our self-concept. Examples of these are feeling, feelings of insecurity, jealousy, uh, perfectionism, narcissism, guilt. He says, in short, neurotic anxiety sits at the root of our experience of self-esteem or of ourself. So Beck here argues that our fear of death often manifests now in a form of neurotic anxiety. An anxiety that determines how we form our identities and pursue meaning in this world. So he says that our forebearers would have likely experienced death as a basic fear, a constant companion to them. But because we have insulated ourselves so much from our existence, it has actually crept in the back door and it's become a neurotic anxiety for us as a society. 
That means it feels taboo to talk about or to even acknowledge. And so my, in my own journey with this topic, I've sat across from many people, especially that were my age or younger, and they've opened up about their deep anxiety concerning death, almost to where it's like crippling or it haunts them. And we often talk about this time in human history as one that's typified by anxiety. And there's anxiety surrounding like, am I enough? Comparison, envy. Uh, there's a constant barrage of bad news coupled with images of people's lives that are far more impressive or better than yours. So people are being crippled with these thoughts of, will my life matter? Am I doing enough? And we've been told that we can create our own meaning as if that's such a great freedom, but instead we're actually finding that that is a great yoke of slavery to be responsible to make your own life count. Like Seneca said, there's great suffering with the inevitable marching towards us, which is death. But even greater suffering is not knowing the terms of your existence. The modern person, instead of being freed, is now enslaved by the personal onus of creating enough meaning out of their days. So you better start that business or not stick in the marriage that you're unhappy with because you only get one shot and it's up to you to make your life count. So what about days that you're sick or not Instagram worthy or you're not performing? If you don't have enough followers or an impressive enough job, does your life have less meaning? What about people who spent most of their lives slaves to alcoholism or spend it in prison and maybe only have a few years of happy life towards the end? Does that mean their life has less meaning? Part of our suffering for many people is not, not knowing whether you will be judged for your life, not knowing whether there is life after this life, the terms of our existence. Or maybe there's many people who suffer because they have to deal with rage at God for being born lower or less than according to our society. Whether that's because you have the wrong skin color or gender or you're in the wrong tax bracket, you might have to spend your days fighting uphill battles to create the full meaning out of them. And then there are people who seem secure in their existence like that David saw. who They might have a great retirement fund or marriage and their life seems to lack the drama, the uncertainty and suffering that a lot of us deal with, but David, in his suffering and anguish, he turns to the one whom he knows holds his life. And he says, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. So David here, he needs the perspective of God, like the God who breathed into um, David's lungs and gave him breath and also animated his bones. David needs to know that all of his suffering has a reason, even if he doesn't know the specifics. The question of asking for the brevity of life is not actually a math question, but it's a question of identity. Is it that neurotic anxiety that creeps in asking, does my life have value? When suffering comes, can I bear it? Do I need to fear suffering? These are altogether unanswerable questions if only in the purview of a frail, not sovereign human Right? We simply do not have the power to orchestrate deep meaning out of tragedies or evil or suffering. We're just not that strong. So I'd like to pose that our modern fear of death and maybe those thoughts that come to you at 3 a.m. about if your lives have meaning at their root are actually an identity crisis. Because we were designed by a creator, we alone cannot create our own identity, our own purpose, or our own meaning not enough to equate the human soul. 
So the question beneath the question is actually, God, can I trust you? So hopefully you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, where we see the fall of humankind and their betrayal of God. Uh, scholar, his name is Walter Brueggemann, he assesses this ancient text through a different lens than probably a lot of us have heard, because we often just talk about this text as the fall or sin entering the world and death. And though that is true, Brueggemann instead, he talks of a couple that wanted knowledge rather than trust. The terms of life offered by God, they rejected. They instead moved towards autonomy. This text has been studied more than any other text that has ever existed, right? And so about this particular text, Brueggemann goes on, he says, this story is a theological critique of anxiety. It presents a prism through which the root cause of anxiety can be understood. The man and the woman are actually controlled by their anxiety. They seek to escape anxiety by attempting to circumvent the reality of God. For the reality of God and the reality of anxiety are related to each other. Overcoming of God is thought to lead to the nullification of anxiety about self. But the story teaches otherwise. It is only God, the one who calls, permits, prohibits, or sets terms, who can deal with the anxiety among us. The causes for anxiety among us are wrongly discerned often. This text fixes the issue in terms of accepting the realities of our life with God. Our mistake is to pursue autonomous freedom. Freedom which does not discern the boundaries of human life leaves us anxious. So what he's saying here is that in the garden, we did not accept the terms that God gave us about life. He said, here's a boundary. Don't eat from this tree. You know, and we instead chose autonomy. We chose to not trust. And so that has spurred on this identity crisis, which we all still have this anxiety. So our hidden fear of death actually has to do more with false definitions of self, but even more so a lack of accepting and understanding the terms of life that God has laid out for humanity. When we reject those terms, we live in anxiety. The story that turned creation into uncreation is marked defiantly by the human spirit of rejection of the creator and his terms. And now we live anxiety-ridden lives, ones that cannot count on provision, live in scarcity, and instead seek to dominate and oppress one another. And so, like I said earlier, it's now said that we live in a time that's marked by anxiety, right? Like, there's study after study reporting this massive uptick in anxiety and anxiety disorders. And while there's a lot of reasons for this, and a lot of them I think are very valid, you know, life now is one of alienation, self-reliance, carrying too much information. We literally can watch tragedies unfold on our Instagram reels of shootings and genocides. And while this is not my, well, I'm not an expert, so this is not an expert opinion. But as I've studied this week, I've started to see that what we actually see in scripture is that the core of our anxiety is not Instagram or the political climate, well, these things contribute, but the core of our anxiety is that we do not trust God with our lives. We do not trust his provision or lovingly accept his boundaries on our lives, even death. And it's as ancient as this old text. So while limiting screen time and other things might have a massive effect on your anxiety, and you should do those things if you feel convicted to, 
I would argue that it would be more life-altering to be determined at all costs to pursue the ruthless and reckless trust of God with your days. Failure to trust God with our lives is death. That's what Walter Brueggemann says. But acceptance here is actually the precursor to trust, right? You cannot trust God with your life unless you are accepting of his terms. As he knitted you in the womb, he had a design and a blueprint for your life. He, he created what would lead you to thriving and flourishing and joy, what your capacities and your needs were. But more than that, he intended himself to be the primary one who meets those needs. He intended to be your rock, your redeemer, the one who feeds you and cares for you. Brueggemann says this, he says, Our public life is largely premised on an exploitation of our common anxiety. The advertising of consumerism and the drives of an acquisitive society, like the serpent, seduce into believing that there are securities apart from the reality of God. So this anxiety that we share is being constantly seduced and, and, and propagated by consumerism and the society that we live in, telling us that we can have real security and real peace outside of just a reckless love and trust of God. So what we would name as our collective anxiety is actually, it, the microcosms are the, it's actually like the side story. Like, yes, we see an unbelievable amount of tragedies and information, and I think that contributes, but I would say that the core of it is actually an identity issue and a lack of trust of God because we don't want to accept the terms that he's given us. We don't want to acknowledge that death is a thing in this life, that sin and suffering are present. So where do we turn? So we see in the verse 7 of Psalm 39 that David did the opposite of Adam and Eve. Instead of rejecting the terms of his existence, he looked to God and he said, I look nowhere else but to you for my hope, for providence, for my life. So to live into the, the resurrection where we are now, the new creation that Christ has inaugurated with his death on a cross and raising from the dead, I think it looks like letting death pull up a chair at the table. That suffering might take a seat adjacent. And that we would try to find in ourselves the expansiveness to be vulnerable to the feelings and the suffering of this life. Because I think only then will we find the joy in this life. As with so many paradoxes of the kingdom, it is like, for you to find your life, you must lose it. Now, not that death should be our longtime friend or allegiance, but instead to accept that God in his sovereign hand has allowed it. So for now, suffering and death will be at our table. Enemies will be at our table, just like it says in Psalm 23. And as we sit at the table that God prepares for us, death and suffering and our enemies also have a chair. But somehow, our cup still overflows. And we know that for those who are in Christ, that the goodness and love of God will follow us every day. And that also... This life is not the final word. So as we sit at the table, we need to accept that we won't often have the knowledge, the explicit answer to our whys of suffering, but instead we can still find ourselves leaning on the everlasting arms. The embrace of goodness shall always be ours. And we actually have more of the story than David did. 
for now we are in Christ. And so today I want to give you this, that in Christ, death is just a doorway to something better. In Christ, death is an enemy that will be conquered instead of just simply a fate that's marching towards us. And death is also a gardener. So you and I, we are all put down in the soil to die like a seed, only to be raised to something much more perfect and much more beautiful and radiant. If you guys want to pray with me. Lord, we come to you in this moment acknowledging that we often rail against what you've laid out for us, that we don't love that we have to be present to sin and death, though we are just as much a part of it. And so today I ask for everyone in this room, the Holy Spirit, you would speak, and as you bring things up, God, that you would speak a word of hope and life and encouragement to these people, that they may lovingly accept the terms of their lives that you have laid out for them, and that they may accept it as goodness and care from a heavenly Father who conquered death for them. In Jesus' name, amen.